everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome aboard to the next edition of the Supply Side Podcast. Great to have the pleasure of your time for this short discussion on uh, what I've been reading lately. And uh, we're going to be talking about George Gilder's book, Knowledge and Power. This is the kind of book that uh, you want to read in the right place. This requires some concentration. And I first began to tackle it just a few days ago while I'm sitting at my son's cricket game. So for my American listeners, the only thing more complex than global macro finance and information theories of capitalism is the rules of cricket. So uh, basically I took myself out there, it was a beautiful day, and began to work through George Gilder's knowledge and power. So really what we're looking at here is this information theory of capitalism. That capitalism is a system by which information is communicated. And I guess in a way information is sort of, or knowledge is overlaid on physical reality. So I want to take you through a few opening ideas from the book. There's a couple of great quotes, and I think even though it was written a little while ago, it it really speaks presciently to many of the issues and challenges that we are facing. A couple of uh, interesting opening quotes from the book. Gilda says, We are almost entirely incapable of predicting the future. And he sort of says that in the context of, if you look at our own lives, you know, none of us knows at any given point in our life exactly what the outcomes of certain things will be. Now, sure, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you can predict that outcome relatively effectively. But for anything of more complexity, it gives the example of, you know, deciding what to study if you go to college or university. You know, you can't know what that what you study is the absolute best possible decision that you can make. And you can't predict the exact outcome of that. You know, one career might take you in one path with enormous success. Studying something else might not. So at key points in our lives, he, he's making this point that predicting the future is not a particularly... Uh, a particular skill that humanity has really been able to master. And he says here, this is the next quote, he says, From Adam Smith's day to ours, the chief concern of the discipline, and that's the discipline of economics, he says, has been to render economic events unsurprising. I like that. So he's basically making the point that from Adam Smith right through, one of the goals of economics has been to take surprise out of the system. So that when things happen, there's very few surprises. And if you look at, I guess, modern central banking, we're still laboring under that illusion. You know, central bank monetary policy seems to be based on the idea that they can create stability and predictability in the system so that we can all have certainty in our economic undertakings. But how has that been working so far? Let's talk about surprising economic events. Let's talk about the dot-com bubble. Let's talk about uh, the global financial crisis. Let's talk about all the stuff that's happening at the moment. It's, it's, it's a fact that economic events continue to be extremely surprising at key moments. Now, some people did pick them. You look at you know people like uh, Peter Schiff predicting the housing bubble collapse. He was predicting that back in 2006. Jim Rickards has also made some accurate predictions. But uh, this idea that economics itself, and especially those at the higher, highest echelons of economic power, can render these events unsurprising does not seem to be borne out by facts at this point. So a couple more key quotes here. 
Um, I'm just going to read you a couple of key things here. He says, at the heart of capitalism is the unification of knowledge and power. And then he quotes from um, from Hayek, and he says, this is a direct quote from Friedrich Hayek, and he says, to assume all the knowledge to be given to a single mind is to disregard everything that is important and significant in the real world. So Hayek's pointing to the fact that when it comes to information, what we can know about the world or economics, one of the first things we need to understand is that knowledge, information, is highly dispersed in reality. But as I often like to say, if you look at the Fed, they have this idea that you know that the 12 governors can meet and that all knowledge and wisdom is contained within those 12 heads and they can be relied upon to bring about the best outcomes. And I also have often said that the the US Federal Reserve System has over 1,500 economics PhDs on staff, let alone, you know, what the IBS would have or uh, the IMF would have in terms of brain power. But Hayek's making the point that if we if we argue that just that, that knowledge and information is contained in a single person or a small single group of people, that's problematic. And then Gilder goes on here and says, because knowledge is dispersed, power must be as well. And then he's talking about Thomas Sowell and um, Robert Mundell, and he says, they saw that the crucial knowledge in economies originated in individual human minds, and thus was intrinsically centrifugal, dispersed, and distributed. And here's an important final quote here. He says, the freer an economy is, the more this human diversity of knowledge will be manifested. This is the part that I like here. Listen to this. By contrast, political power originates in top-down processes. Governments, monopolies, regulators, and elite institutions all attempting to quell human diversity and impose order. Thus, power always seeks centralization. And I think we are very familiar with that at the moment with lockdowns and all sorts of other political uh, you know, issues in our political economy. We can see that power that, you know, political power particularly seeks to centralize at all costs, whereas Hayek is saying that really at the heart of capitalism is this distributed information, is this... So uh, there's an interesting tension there, don't you think? The the tension between this government drive towards control and centralization and this wider disbursement of human ingenuity, creativity, information, knowledge. I think that's one of the promises of blockchain. So uh, not so much of Bitcoin, but uh, speaking of which, it dropped 17% overnight. So how Bitcoin is a store of value, I'm not sure when it uh, has that level of volatility in a 24-hour period. So let me give you a couple more things here. Um, so that's the opening gambit is that, you know, capitalism is an information system. It's, it's a, and I'll get onto that more deeply. This will make more sense as we go. So this is the next quote I want to share with you. Uh, Gilda says, the key to economic growth is not acquisition of things by the pursuit of monetary rewards, but the expansion of wealth through learning and discovery. That's a very powerful quote. I'm just going to do this again quickly. The key to economic growth is not acquisition of things but the, by the pursuit of monetary rewards, but the expansion of wealth through learning 
and discovery. So in this thesis, wealth grows in a society as more and more people pursue innovation, learning and discovery. You can see again the inherent, you know, enormous flaws of, you know, central planning and uh, and and communism. You know, this idea that uh, that you're going to have economic flourishing and stability if everybody is disincentivized from individual learning and discovery. Now look at the great breakthroughs, you know, in technology, in healthcare, in all the different areas come through individual people and their learning and discovery, entrepreneurship. So the next significant opening section of the book gets into this really important concept around signal and noise. So he's talking a great deal here about Claude Shannon, who was at Bell Labs back in the 50s and 60s. And Shannon was kind of the developed this theory around entropy, around change in information systems and how using technology, electronics, how, how signal is communicated through a system, through a channel. This is quite complex, so if I'm doing a bad job at it, please forgive me because I had to bury myself in it uh, on the weekend to get through it. But, I mean, you know, Shannon, Claude Shannon was a phenomenal mind, but his work on how signals get through a channel, um, you you know, this whole concept of like signal and noise, that that you want to be able to hear the signal through the noise. This was a lot of what Shannon was working on in terms of uh, sound waves and radio and technology and early transistors and all this kind of stuff. So this led to stuff, of course, like uh, Qualcomm, and then Gilda talks a bit about Qualcomm. You know, and how they were the guys to really figure out this uh, CDMA mobile phone signal technology that really transformed uh, so much of the system because they were able to figure out how you can move clear signal through surrounding noise. Now, what does this have to do with you? What's it got to do with supply-side economics? Well, the answer is a great deal. And here's why. Because the the ability of a of an economy to function effectively is based on the ability of people to read and understand signals. Think about it this way. So here's a really important quote. All information, this is from Gilder, he says, all information is surprise. Only surprise qualifies as information. This is the fundamental axiom of information theory. Information is the change between what we knew before the transmission and what we know after it. So you can imagine an economic system where there is no signaling of change, no surprise, no new information. You effectively wouldn't have an economy. You wouldn't have markets because there's nothing but permanent stasis. There's absolutely no change. So, you know, how do speculators, how do entrepreneurs, how do analysts you know, make money. You know, they do it by realizing changes in signals and changing their behavior and choices and investments based on these signals. So, I guess for a for a market for an economy to function properly, you have to have a system where you can clearly hear signal through noise, through surrounding noise, and that the system itself is able to bring about new information, new surprise. And here is where I want to finish for today. So I hope you're going okay. There's a fair bit to this, and, and uh, it helps me just to kind of go back through it. And I want to read you this final stuff here. Page 24. Chapter is the science of information. Here's the quote. A high-entropy, government-dominated channel 
full of unpredictable political interference and noise would depress the sacrificial long-term investment of capital. So a really simple idea there is basically that the more that government gets involved in the signalling that's taking place inside markets and economies, then we obviously start to get malinvestment, we start to get the inability of people to make rational, you know, intelligent, productive investment decisions. And here's the last thing I want to read you today. It's a slightly longer quote, but here it is. Interest rates are critical for information theory economic analysis because they are an index of real economic conditions. And here's the really important line. If the government manipulates them, they will issue false signals, breeding confusion that undermines entrepreneurial activity. For example, if the government keeps interest rates artificially low for institutions that finance it, as it has been doing in the United States, the channel is seriously distorted. Okay, so you can see this link back to Claude Shannon's channel and signal and noise theories. The interest rates are noise rather than signal. Interest rates near zero cause finance to hypertrophy as privileged borrowers reinvest government funds in government securities. Only a small portion of these funds goes to useful infrastructure, while the rest is burned off in consumption beyond our means. I mean, I'm trying to think when this was exactly published. Let me just check that. I've got the book in front of me here. So this is first published. Well, the edition that I've got here, 2013, so a little little less than 10 years ago. But how accurately does it describe the current situation? Interest rates near zero, the channel being seriously distorted, privileged borrowers taking government money, reinvesting it in government securities, um, a small amount going to infrastructure, useful infrastructure, and the rest being burned off in consumption beyond our means. Stimulus checks, anybody? So... I just think it's it's a fascinating initial exploration of the book and I hope to share more with you more of it with you over the next few weeks but my takeaway my limited uh, understanding at this point I mean many of you are far more advanced in this than I am but basically for markets to function effectively there needs to be a clear possibility for surprise for changes in information for information to reach people effectively so they can make decisions about what to do how to invest but if the channel is distorted if the signal is disrupted through government manipulation then the markets will eventually distort and I don't know about you, friends, but looking at the asset bubbles around the world at the moment, I think this is exactly where we are. I'd be fascinated to know what you think. So if you're hearing this on the website, please post a comment. Come across to SupplySidePartners.com, SupplySidePartners.com, and uh, you'll find this under the episode Knowledge uh, and Power. I'd love to know what you guys think about some of the stuff I've just shared in this brief message. All right, that's it from me now. I'm going to go read the business pages and see how much distortion there is in the channel. But, uh, and, I, and I guess, you know, really this is going to go to the heart of the question, you know, that Nathan Lewis constantly brings so effectively around stable money, right? Around the gold signal, around the, the price of gold and the role of gold as, as uh, you know, as the reserve that it's been 
and the central money that it's been for over 5,000 years because gold allows and becomes an accurate unit of account. It allows clear signaling. And obviously in fiat-based currencies, we're, we're seeing that, uh, that certainty, that predictability, that uh, clear signal being distorted. All right, friends, that's it from me today. My name's Jonathan Doyle. This has been the Supply Side Podcast, and I'm going to have another message for you very soon.